Good morning, Grace. Let's go before the throne of grace. Your majesty, King of kings and Lord of lords, we come before you. God the Son, be glorified here this morning. Let us know you better so that we may therefore love you and trust you more. God the Spirit, we ask that you would remove from us those things that would distract us from hearing and obeying your word and that you would empower us, you would work in and through and for us and our near ones so that we will bring glory to you, growth to your kingdom and joy to our own hearts. Bless us now so that we will be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. The thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Satan and Jesus have diametrically opposed goals in this world. And Jesus sums it up here. He sums it up a little differently elsewhere. He says in John 8.44, when the devil lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. But he says of himself in John 14.6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, Satan has no agenda except destroy. And Jesus' agenda is to bring life. And for some reason that we cannot yet comprehend, God allows this temporary rebellion of Satan and those who desire to speak lies fluently. But there will come a day when all that will change. God will be glorified by everyone. Regardless. In Romans 14, 10, 11, Paul says, We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, declares the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. Every tongue shall confess to God. Satan will glorify God? Liars will glorify God? Yes. They will bow the knee. Yes. They too, not willingly, not joyfully, but they will God-glorifyingly bow the knee nevertheless. And I want us, as we get to our psalm, we're continuing through psalm for a little while, as we get to Psalm 5, I want you to pay close attention because we will find that these themes are related we will find that you will bow the knee before the Lord. So do it now and singing joyfully. Let's go to our text, Psalm 5, verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray, O Lord, in the morning. You hear my voice. In the morning, I prepare sacrifice for you and watch. 
For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes, for you hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful men. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, I will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let us ever sing for joy and spread your protection over us. Let those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Now I have a very specific agenda today. I intend, contrary to my normal practice, to preach a subordinate idea of this psalm. Alan Ross describes in one sentence the main point, the gist of this psalm well. He says, The righteous may pray with confidence for deliverance from deceitful and malicious attacks because their God hates wickedness. Amen. I, that is the, the big idea of this Psalm, and if I were to preach that, I would preach, I would preach something like this Cry to God, not against people. Cry to God because He hears you. Amen. That, that, is, that is wonderful. And furthermore, I agree that proper exegetical preaching usually aims to preach the big main idea of the passage, certainly not to preach against that idea. I do not intend to preach against that idea, but I do want to emphasize. I want to get at a part of that big idea that I think, well, frankly, I believe God's people really need to hear. And that is this. Jesus is for you, my King and my God. Jesus, right now, is the King of Kings and President of Presidents. Jesus, right now, is your King and your God. So, sometimes we pray, Your Majesty. Now these words from verse 2, my King and my God jumped right off the page to me this week. And I rejoiced. I began as I saw these words to see how the psalm fit together. And I sang in my heart, praise Jesus. <laughs> now of course, I didn't sing out loud because I didn't want people to run out of the office screaming. But this morning... As we look at Psalm 5, I want to look at it in such a way that you will be able to sing for joy to your King and your God. Now, I don't think, actually, I need to defend this idea that Jesus is your King and your God, but I will note that Thomas, 
one of Jesus' disciples, when he saw the risen king, he said, my Lord and my God. Now clearly, if Thomas did not have this particular psalm in mind, something like it was coursing through his worshiping veins at the very moment he saw the risen Jesus. Praise Jesus! Praise Jesus! Because that's what David is doing right now. And as we come to these words, I want to note something that's very important. In fact, I'm going to take a step at first away from Psalm 5 because I want us to see in Psalm 5 that five times David addresses the Lord, Yahweh. And so I wanted to look at what does Yahweh mean? What is, what is Yahweh trying to get at when he uses this as his personal name? His, his name isn't Greg. His name is Yahweh. So what I did is I went to Genesis and Exodus and I looked at several of the significant places describing who and what God is. What connotation can we get from Yahweh? What clues can we gather up by what is meant by the name Hashem in Hebrew? And so I asked the question, what do we see is emphasized in these important passages where the name is used? Now, I've way oversimplified here, but I want to simplify this teaching with four words. Yahweh is the personal, creator, saving king of the universe. Yahweh is the personal, creator, saving king of the universe. So let's look at some of these passages. Exodus chapter 3, 14 and 15. God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. That's his name, Yahweh. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus am I to be remembered throughout all generations. Yahweh means I am. He is the eternal one. There is nowhere and no when that he is not. But, he is not some power. He is not some ether floating in the universe. He is a person. And here, right where he reveals his name, he emphasizes that though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all dead in terms of their life on earth, Yahweh, the living one, the personal one, remains their God. The King of kings and the Lord of lords is a person. Now, Jesus underlined this. He underscored this reality in Matthew chapter 22 when he reminded of this very verse that no, Abraham, Israel, Isaac, and, and Jacob are not dead. They are gloriously alive and well in the presence of the very personal King of kings and Lord of lords. We also see as we're looking back in Genesis and Exodus where his name is revealed we see that he is also the creator he's the personal creator Genesis 2 4 these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth 
Who made the heavens and the earth? Yahweh. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. He created the heavens and the earth. And oh, my beloved, my friends, let us remember that Yahweh created because it is poured into our hearts and heads and minds over and over this idea of evolution. That is not what happened. Yahweh created the personal God who gave us His personal name created. This is your God. The one who created the trees is the one who created you. The one who created the clouds in the heavens created your soul and He created it to love Him. He is not only the personal Creator, but He is also the personal Creator who saves. And oh my goodness, I wish I had a month of Sundays just to preach this passage. But look with me at Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord Yahweh passed before Moses and He proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He is the God who saves. Yahweh is the God who sent Jesus to the cross so that you could be saved by trusting in Him. By looking to God's promises for you and Jesus, you can be saved. And that is what is being proclaimed in one of the first most important passages in all of Scripture about the covenants. And we see that He is the King. He is the personal Creator, King of the universe. In Exodus 20, we see the Ten Commandments being revealed. Verse 1, And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. Yahweh rules. Yahweh rightly demands obedience. Yahweh rightly enforces His reasonable rule over the creation and over the governments that exist on the earth, whether they be Egypt or whether they be the United States of America. And therefore, you can begin your prayers. Your Majesty. Now much more could be said about all these realities. Obviously, we could preach for a long time on them. But I'm emphasizing these four because the Scriptures emphasize them. In very obviously key passages through Exodus or Genesis and Exodus, we see Yahweh's name being emphasized with these realities. And here's my point. Here's my point. When we get to Psalm 5, when we get to anywhere in the Bible and it's talking to or about the Lord, all of this reality comes out. All of this reality is there. And so, what David does in this psalm is he marches straight into the throne room and he is expecting Yahweh to hear, and rightly so, because he is the one who will hear our prayer. My emphasis is not this morning, although it could be, 
My emphasis is not this morning that God hears me. My emphasis is on the fact that He is God and He deserves our worship. He is properly addressed, Your Majesty. Therefore, sing for joy to your King and your God. Sing for joy. He is your King and He is your God. And He invites you into His throne room with joy. Rejoice. Rejoice. For great is your King. So we turn now to Psalm 5. And we look in our first few verses. We see you here. Psalm 5, 1-3. through Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groanings. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Amen. Your King, your God hears. This is what I want you to do this morning. This is what I want you to do. I want you to look in your Bible here at Psalm 5 and put your God glasses on. Now in order to do that, you're going to have to take your me glasses off. Do we ever take our me glasses off? I I picture David here sort of outside himself and he's looking in the direction of himself, but right between him and him is God. And so he's focusing on God. God is clear and he is behind God, blurry. That's how our vision should be. Not nearsighted, not farsighted, God-sighted. Everything we see in life must be seen in how that part of life is viewed in light of God. How that part of light relates to God. So for example, are you afraid of getting sick? View that sickness in light of the fact that Jesus is the great physician. Are you afraid of losing your job? View that job loss in light of the fact that Jesus owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he can provide one of those cattle for you any time. Are you afraid that you'll never conquer that temptation? Or that a loved one will never conquer that temptation? View your defeat in light of the fact that Jesus alone can change the leopard spots. He can and he will change those who trust Him to change them. So, you can sing for joy to your King and your God because there is nothing on earth to fear. This world is a perfectly safe place to be because your King Your God is the personal Creator King of the universe. So my friends, pray. Pray in many ways. Be creative. Rejoice when you talk to your Abba Father. Bring your concerns to the personal Creator saving King of the universe because He hears and He wants to hear you. Your Father in Heaven loves to hear His Son and Daughter run up to Him and say, Abba. 
Now, speaking of this love, we see in this psalm, over the next several verses, we have a view into God's emotions. So we ask, who is this king and God? Now, when we ask this question of someone we don't know or we have only just met, we are interested in what it is they value. Because what a person values will tell us most of what we need to know about them. If, like Satan, they value death and lies and destruction, then we will raise our guard. But if, like Jesus, they value truth and therefore life, then we will raise our arms to embrace. And these next verses make it clear what your God and King hates and what He loves. So let's pay close attention to verses 4 through 6. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now I've been telling you, beloved, for years that the worst thing you can do is train your heart to lie. If your heart believes lies, and if your heart believes that it can lie, then there will be nothing that you cannot or will not do. If you teach your heart to tell lies, you will be training yourself towards fluency in the language of hell. Christian, that is a foreign language you don't want to learn. Forget what you know of it. Cling to Jesus. Learn to speak the truth in love and rejoice because you're singing about joyfully about your great God and King. But I also want you to notice here in, verses, in verse 6 the relationship between lies and violence. He says, you destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now this culture has ignored or denied this we have embraced bloodlust as well as lies do not please do not allow yourself to be entertained by a bloodthirsty culture instead sing for joy to your god and king and as you do this you will hate what god hates and in the face of the lies all around you, you will allow your joyful singing to cause your heart to turn away from those things that maybe you currently embrace. Instead, in contrast to those who rely on lies and will not be heard, God cannot allow the evil to dwell within Him. Instead, you will see what it is God loves. And we get this in verses 7 and 8. He says, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Oh, my friends, your God is a welcoming God. Your God is a God that longs to embrace all who will be embraced. He loves you. 
So first off, celebrate that. That's what David's doing here. He's celebrating it. He's going, yes, praise Jesus. I love this welcoming God. So you who know more about God than David did, know Him. Love Him. Trust Him. Allow God the Spirit to make you more and more like Him by seeing Him in Psalm 5 and throughout Scripture. You see, God loves hospitality. My friends, Jesus paid the price on the cross so that you would be united with every other person on the planet. Whoever it is who is near you, no matter what they believe, no matter what they love, no matter who they vote for, every single one of them are candidates for you to shower love and hospitality on. And you can sing for joy that your God and King opened that door to this person who disagrees with you. So now you can open it yourself. Which brings us to the next question. How is it that we get into the Lord's house? What was it that qualified David to enter your house in verse 7? It's through the abundance of your steadfast love. Was it David's kingdom that qualified him? Was it his rugged good looks? Was it his good psalm writing ability? No, no, no. What qualifies David to enter God's house is God's, Yahweh's covenant, steadfast, faithful love. It goes deeper than that. Deuteronomy 7.7 tells us that God loves us because He loves us. It's not because we're a great nation. It's not because we're wonderful. It's not that we have stunningly good-looking lack of hair. It's because God loves us. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. That's what qualifies us to get into the house. And therefore, those who are near you, those who are candidates for your love and hospitality can enter the house as well. Because they see it in you. And we're not going to spend as much time as we have in the past on this. But what does David do once he's in Yahweh's house? While in the holy temple, David fears. I bow down toward you, your holy temple, in the fear of you. Remember, please do not forget the fear of the Lord. The personal, creator, saving king of the universe. The fear of the Lord is the fact that we put our attention on Him first and foremost. As It is as if a lion were in your room. You would exert a whole lot of energy and thought into making sure you were in a right relationship to that lion in your room. Similarly, God's children exert a lot of energy and thought in making sure we are in a right relationship to Yahweh. But instead of trying to get away, instead of trying to put a barrier, we get to Him because we realize that the safest place in the universe is right between the paws of the Lion of Judah. And while you are there, as in no other place in the universe, you can sing 
for joy to your King and God. Safe between those paws that nothing can get between you and Him. Safe in the hands of God. So my friends, love what God loves. Love what He loves. God loves those who are near you. So love them. Be welcoming to them just as God welcomes you. Find out what makes your neighbors tick and share with them your hospitality so that they will be able to hear your truth when you present it in obvious love that they cannot deny. Now again, we see that there is a contrast because there are those who love lies. And what David emphasizes here is those who love lies fall. Verses 9 and 10. There is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Now these verses are harsh. But I want to note something. Making us bear our guilt is not what God delights to do. He makes this clear in among other places, Ezekiel 33, say to Israel, say to sinning Israel who's not turning to God, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but what does he have pleasure in? That the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back Turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? God doesn't want to bring judgment. God does not want to judge anyone. But I also want to note, furthermore, that when David does the judging, David is acting as the king. He is not acting as a private individual. He refuses to kill some people sometimes because he realizes he'd be doing that as a private person. You and I don't have that. Instead, David is exercising his judicial responsibility and prerogatives that you and I don't have. Instead, what do we remember? What do we do? We remember that God's heart is that we would turn over all our judicial actions to Him. Because he is pleading with them, turn back, turn back. Why will you die? You, beloved, can trust Yahweh to take care of your legitimate needs for justice. And he would rather give his mercy. He would prefer that we as well would give mercy. And therefore, we pray that God would change their hearts of those who hate him so that they would repent. Because it is, after all, about him. David even says, they have rebelled against you, O Yahweh. Not me. We want to give mercy so that they too will also sing for joy to your King and your God. Because when they do, when they do, they will truly be your friend. And they will truly no longer be your enemy. 
And it's for this desire, it's for this wish that David ends his psalm. He says in verses 11 and 12, but contrary to this making them bear their guilt, contrary to that judgment, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you, singing loud, unembarrassed songs to you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. David begins his psalm and he's saying, You're hearing me, God. I know you are. Praise Jesus. He's excited. And he talks about the Lord. He talks about himself. He talks about his enemies. And he gets to the end of his psalm. And what is he doing? He's crying out to the Lord. He's glorying in the Lord. He acknowledges that the Lord has blessed him. He's rejoicing. He's hallelujahing. He's praise Jesusing. And I learned this principle from Bill Bright. He said to us several times while we were at school, he said, when you ask God for something, end your prayer by saying thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Why? Why should we say thank you? Because we know that when he has heard us, we will receive what we have asked of him. If it is the right thing, if it is a good thing for us in his kingdom, he will give it to us, so, so we say thank you. And if it isn't, he won't give it to us, so we say thank you. Praise Jesus. And you can praise Jesus now because you know your king and your God. Jesus came to earth and he put skin on to be with us. Jesus came to earth and he put on a crown of thorns because Jesus went to the cross. He bought for you your salvation. Yes and amen. And he bought for you also your righteousness. And so as we come to Psalm 5, we see certain promises. And these promises are blood bought from the cross promises. For example, your prayers are heard. Your righteousness defended. Your lies, the lies you say and those around you say are destroyed. Your refuge is established. And in God's favor, you find your shield. Because of the cross, you can know and therefore love and trust your King and your God. So sing with joy to your King and your God. I want to emphasize something that we Americans might miss. Yahweh, the personal creator, saving king of the universe, is also my king and my God. I think we understand what my God means. But I want to emphasize something else. God uses human relationships to describe himself because we have to. We, we have to use things that we are familiar with in order to understand things that we are not familiar with. Case in point, what is a king? Well, a king is at once two different things. He is the head of state and he is the head of the government. As the head of state, the king is the one who represents the country or the kingdom. Now, Americans are allergic to thinking in terms of 
the monarchy. Fortunately, praise Jesus, when George Washington was how, asked how he wanted to be addressed, they said, do you want to be called your majesty? Praise Jesus, he said, no, call me Mr. President. But it is also true that more people have lived their life under some form of monarchy in the history of the world. And when good, a good monarch, not a bad one, we've seen more bad than good probably, a good monarch represents, he is the head of state, he represents all that we love and honor. We love and honor our king like we love and honor our nation. We are willing to sacrifice ourselves for our king because we are willing to sacrifice ourselves for our nation. Again, we Americans miss this and we are poorer for it. He is also the head of government. And because he is the head of government, we obey him. And we are willing to give up our rights for him. I wonder if that would have anything to do with what we are going through right now. Are you willingly giving up your rights? Or are you grumbling about it? My friends, we are many of us Americans, but we are not Americans first. We are Christians first. And our ultimate allegiance is to our King and our God. Now, there are times when that means civil disobedience. But there are a lot more times when our country and our church calls us to make sacrifices, legitimately calls on us to make sacrifices of our rights so that we will bring glory to Him. And as always, because He is our King and our God, we begin our prayers, Your Majesty. He is your Father, and therefore you may run up to Him and sit on His lap, but while you are sitting there, remember He is also your King and your God. Your Majesty, God our Father in Heaven, we come before You and we rejoice to be Your children. Praise Jesus! We can run into the throne room of God and jump up onto Your lap and say, Abba, Father, And we remember that we must also obey. Help us to hold this in glorious tension and bring glory to You. Jesus, we worship You. Thank You that You are the King of kings and the President of presidents. That no decision by any governing body anywhere is outside of Your scope. You know. and You are keeping track. And God the Spirit, we rejoice to be Yours We rejoice that You are in us and we ask that You would empower us to be the citizens of the Kingdom of Heaven and the citizens of the United States so that we can bring glory to You wherever and whenever we are. Help us to do that for Your glory, for our joy, and for the growth of Your Kingdom. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you, Grace.